Morning, everyone. So Dan came to me with this idea of the contest. Yeah. So I, I chose from a list of about 50 to 55 different names and titles of Jesus. Okay, so you've got about 50 to choose from. There's nine sermons left. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you 12 guesses at what the nine are. And they can be in any order. So you don't have to guess them in order. That would be almost impossible. So some of you are going to guess 12 of them, and they will all be wrong. Because there's 50 to choose from. And some of you are going to guess 12, and maybe nine of them will be right. You never know. And whatever life group gets the most right answers will get two pies. <laughs> and if there's a tie, I'll make lots more pies. So I'll send out some information to the life group leaders. And your life group leaders don't even know. At the beginning, I sent out an email saying, I've already sent you the list because I have them all. And then I realized afterwards, I didn't send them the list. So your life group leaders do not even know the list. So you guys are on your own to make the guesses and submit them as a group. You're submitting these as a group. There you go. There's the contest explained. Oh, the music team. Yeah, I know. I know the music team knows, but I'm trusting you to not participate. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you're worried about Isaac. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, the reason that we're going through this series, as has been mentioned, is that, and I started off the series reminding you of kind of visiting the eye doctor and how he's flipping the lenses over your eyes. And these names and titles of Jesus are kind of like those lenses that the eye doctor, um, uh, the optometrist, I guess I should use their actual name, uh, the optometrist uses to correct our, your vision so that you can see more clearly. And, and God has graciously given us so many names and so many titles of Jesus that as we look through those titles and as we look through the lens of those names, we see specific things about Jesus more clearly and in greater detail. And so today we're considering Jesus the cornerstone and how God intends this particular identity of Jesus being the cornerstone intentionally to help us identify the purpose of Jesus and how he functions in our lives. And there are several places in Scripture that identify Jesus in this way. Um, the earliest claims of Jesus as the cornerstone are found in the Old Testament, and they're obviously prophetic. They're looking ahead to the arrival of the cornerstone in the person of Jesus. Uh, we see in Isaiah 28 that God spoke through the prophet and said, Therefore, the Lord God said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and the one who believes will be unshakable. And I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the mason's level, and hail will sweep away the false refuge and water will flood your hiding place. And then later on, the psalmist writes, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous. Now, when we read those verses, we have the benefit of being on this side 
of the cross. And on this side of the New Testament writing, we have the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles, which helps us understand what God is saying in these verses. What is this about a cornerstone? And what is salvation on a cornerstone? And how is the stone rejected? And how does it become salvation? And so for many of us who have put our trust in this cornerstone and our foundation is secure, all I have to do is read verses like this this morning and our hearts are already being warmed within us because we already know on this side of the New Testament and experience the spiritual realities of this cornerstone and that this cornerstone is Jesus. That is the identity of the cornerstone that God has placed in Zion. And we just see that, if you want a little more, to just get this identity kind of in your mind. While he was teaching, Jesus himself quotes Psalm 118. He quotes this psalm to the Pharisees who were challenging him. And in Matthew 21, we're told that in the moment that Jesus quoted Psalm 118, they immediately were aware that he was talking about them and him. They were the ones that were rejecting the cornerstone. And he is the cornerstone. They were the builders rejecting the cornerstone. And the kingdom, he said, would then be given to another people because they have rejected him. But God's purpose in making his cornerstone goes much further beyond what Isaiah and the psalmist and even Jesus has to say about the people of Israel. The letters of Paul and Peter are especially helpful in focusing our lens on what it means that Jesus is the cornerstone and why it's helpful to us to understand him as our cornerstone. And there's three ways in which it's most helpful. We're going to go through them this morning. The cornerstone of Jesus is important with respect to the community of all Christians, the church, and the life of the individual believer, And it even has significance for those who do not believe. And we'll see these three things this morning from our main text in Peter and a couple other places. Let me just pray before we begin uh, looking into God's word. Father, we do look to your word for its illumination, for its revelation. We thank you and we understand that Jesus is our cornerstone. And I pray that we would learn that that's no accidental title that you've given him, that you planned it. From the very beginning, that you revealed it in Isaiah and in the psalmist, and you teach it again in the apostles so that we might learn what it is that we need to know about your son, that he is the cornerstone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, our main text will be from Peter, and in it you should see those three implications. There are implications to the whole church, the whole community of all Christians. There's implications to our individual lives as believers, and there are implications to those that are not believers. 1 Peter 2, 4-5. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
So the first thing that we want to do here is we're considering this concept of Jesus as the cornerstone is, of course, to focus on Jesus. Everything starts with the identity of Jesus, really starts and ends with the identity of Jesus in the Christian life. That's why we're called Christians. And so we look to Jesus and who he is for the greatest clarity of our understanding of ourselves and of Scripture and of him. And Peter describes Jesus in the exact terms given by God in Isaiah. In fact, he quotes Isaiah there, you may have noticed, so that we don't miss the connection. Peter says, this is who God is talking about. He's talking about Jesus. So let's just look at Isaiah again. And I want to bring forward at least six things that are meant by Jesus being God's cornerstone. He says, therefore, the Lord God said, look, I've laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable, and I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the nation's level. Hail will sweep away the false refuge and water will flood your hiding place. As I said, there's at least six things there that are important to us from that verse. First of all, the laying of the cornerstone is the work of God. When we think of the cornerstone, we have to understand that it is God who lays the cornerstone. He's the initiator of this building project. It is God who sent his son. It's his handiwork. Whatever results from the cornerstone that is laid in Zion is his handiwork and not ours. And whatever God builds will accomplish its purpose. God never fails to accomplish what he is building. And so the work of Jesus as the cornerstone is a divine work. And this further is emphasized in the fact that the cornerstone is tested. God says it is a tested stone. It's a stone that has passed every test and it will not fail. Jesus was tested against Satan for 40 days in the desert. He was tested by the Pharisees and the Sadducees during his teaching ministry. He was tested finally by God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus passed every test. And so from this, we know that God's cornerstone will not fail. And thirdly, we see then that the cornerstone is a sure foundation. What it is built on this foundation will not fail either. If you build your life, if you build your church, whatever you build on the cornerstone of Christ will never fail. Fourthly, we see that the cornerstone establishes what is level and what is true. God says through Isaiah that the measuring line and the level of this stone is righteousness and justice. And so whatever is laid on this stone or next to this stone or according to this stone is measured in its terms of being right and true and correct and pure only in as much as it lines up with this cornerstone. The cornerstone defines rightness and trueness and justice and mercy and everything that goes with it. Fifthly, the cornerstone is precious. God cherishes the cornerstone that he has laid. And we should understand that this cornerstone is not merely functional in accomplishing the purpose of God, but it is extremely desirable and valuable. It is a cherished and precious cornerstone. And then finally, we see that the cornerstone will be rejected by some. It has a dual purpose. 
The cornerstone can either be built on or tripped over. It can either be accepted or rejected. If you do not accept its measuring line and its level, if it is not precious and desirable to you, then it will not be something that builds up, but it will be something that sweeps away. The cornerstone sweeps away any false refuge, any false sense of security that we may have. It causes us to stumble. It causes us to be left without any stable foundation. And Peter also quotes Isaiah 8.14, and he tells us that this stone will be a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. So this stone has a dual purpose. Is this stone a sanctuary or is it a stumbling stone? And as we consider Jesus through the lens of the cornerstone, all six and more of these realities bring into focus the importance and implications of Jesus in terms of the church, in terms of the individual, and in terms of the lost. And so let's return to our text in 1 Peter and just see what he has in mind in each of those three categories. First of all, with regard to the church, Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so Peter takes this identity of the cornerstone that's laid out in Isaiah and in Psalms, and and Peter immediately makes a beeline to the church. He says, this thing that God is building, this gathering, this community, this ecclesia of Christians, that's what is being built on the cornerstone. This is how you must understand what God has done by making Christ the cornerstone. Those that come to him, you see, as you come to him. So as people are coming to the cornerstone, they are being built up into something. They are making a new building, a new temple, a spiritual house of God. And furthermore, Peter will sort of press the metaphor beyond just being stones that are being built into a living household and a living temple they are a new priesthood that serves the house of god so the christians are the house of god and the christians are the priests that serve in the house of god and they're able to serve god with acceptable spiritual sacrifices through christ jesus that's what makes our service acceptable now we're helped by the apostle paul here as well because he kind of joins in with Peter on this in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. And he says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so with reference to Jesus as this cornerstone, as we as Christians engage in the church, there's a few very basic but important details to get in view here. First, they confirm what God has made clear through Isaiah that he has put the cornerstone in place, and God is doing the building. You yourselves are being built up. You also are being built together, is how Peter and Paul put it. Built by whom? Built by God. God is the one who laid the cornerstone. God is the one who is doing the building. The church, then, is not built by people. This is not a man-made institution. 
And this is where it becomes important. When we say the church is not built by people, this is what I mean. It means we don't establish the parameters or the boundaries of the church. We do not decide what the purpose and mission of the church is. We don't describe the criteria of who can belong to the church. The church is God's, and Jesus is the measuring line and the mason level that defines all the dimensions of the church. And so whatever you see in the church should be what you see in Scripture, in the Word of God, specifically in Jesus. So Lakeside, when you come here and you say, well, but you do have all these different things that you need to be a member And there are things that you do, and you do define our bylaws and things like that. Yes, we do, but only in as much as they align with the cornerstone. So this is an invitation to you. If you see Lakeside doing something that you don't think aligns with Scripture, then we need to correct that. Or if you see something that Scripture says a church should be doing that we're not doing, then you should tell us that too, because we should be doing it. Because every church is built on the cornerstone of Christ and is built by God. And men and women do not decide who gets in and who gets out. We do not decide its parameters. We do not decide why the church exists. The church is God's. And so we align ourselves to the cornerstone. And that plays out very practically in how we do accept members and how we do ministry and mission. It must align with the cornerstone. But sadly, there's many organizations and gatherings of people out there who are calling themselves churches, but they have completely departed from God's design for the church, and they've left it far behind, or they've so smothered it in layers of tradition and clever human ideas that they think will help it, that it has basically lost all meaning as a church. Here at Lakeside, everything is subordinate to the person of Christ and the cornerstone. So that's important. Jesus as the cornerstone is important to us as a gathering together as community of Christians who follow Christ. Secondly, though, that cornerstone and that living stone thing that Peter talks about and what Paul talks about very much stresses is that we are all in this together. The cornerstone is not sitting alone by itself, and you are not sitting alone as a Christian. To understand Jesus as the cornerstone is to recognize that there really is no such thing as a Christian without a church. Paul and Peter both say that you are being built together into a spiritual household. And you are, as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, you are being built together alongside other Christians unless you're resisting God's building you together, which you can do. You can actually resist the idea thinking that you can come to the cornerstone but not come to the building, to the people that the cornerstone is built on. And some people do that. It's like, I want the cornerstone, but I don't want any of the stones that go with the cornerstone. And Peter and Paul are saying, you can't do that. You cannot come to the cornerstone and not also come to the spiritual household of God. The church is the body of Christ on earth. You can't love Jesus and hate his bride. That doesn't mean the bride is perfect. It doesn't mean this building is perfect. Even the spiritual building that Peter is talking about. But you can't come to the cornerstone and walk away from the house. To come to Jesus the cornerstone is to know that you belong. Paul says you used to be foreigners and now you're citizens. You didn't used to be family, but now you are family. 
That means for you as a Christian then, you have a God-ordained place to belong and a purpose to serve in God's house. You are supported by those under you and supported by those beside you, and you are supporting those that are above you. So Paul says you have a purpose. After God laid the cornerstone of Jesus, the most important part by far, but God also built out the foundation with the apostles and the prophets. And a couple of chapters later in Ephesians, Paul goes on to say that Jesus gave the church evangelists and pastors and teachers in Ephesians 4.11, a whole bunch of people with spiritual gifts to build up the church. This is what God is building on the cornerstone of Jesus. And so you cannot come to the cornerstone and not come to that spiritual house, and you have a place in that spiritual house. No matter how insignificant, You might think your life was previous to coming to Jesus. When you come to the cornerstone, you gain a new significance and a new identity and a new purpose in being part of God's house. So that means very practically, as you look around this room, you should see that sort of spiritual building being built. We we can't serve the house of God apart from our place in his house. Here at Lakeside, every kingdom-expanding and God-glorifying work that is done here comes from living stones that are a part of God's spiritual household. It doesn't come from anything else. It means that I can't serve except that others serve, and they can't serve unless I serve and you serve. All the bricks of the church hold together as we fill in our place and stay true to the cornerstone of Jesus. There's no worship if none will sing. There's no teaching if none will teach. There's no comfort if none will care. Summer camps draw children to after-school programs, and after-school programs bring families to gym night. And gym night and after-school programs draw families to Sunday morning services. And Sunday morning directs people into life groups. And from life groups and Sunday mornings and summer camps and youth groups, people come to know Jesus and find their place in the household of God. It all hangs together. Nothing is unimportant. From after school to life group to elders to greeters to coffee to preaching to singing, it all is bricks built together in the household of God. So it's important that we understand Jesus as the cornerstone in terms of how we understand our role in the church and what he intends for us. There's more implications about the church that we could dig into, but I want to get to the lens of Jesus as the cornerstone and how it affects us as individual Christians as well. First of all, we want to see that by seeing Jesus as the cornerstone, it clarifies our own identity in Christ. Peter says, Jesus is the living stone, and you also are like living stones. So by coming to the living stone, we become like the living stone. And if you go through the New Testament, it will emphasize over and over and over again that as we come to Jesus, we will be identified with Jesus, both before men and before God. Before men, we are identified with Jesus because the cornerstone is rejected, we read here. And so if the cornerstone is rejected, and we understand that that is true of Jesus, then we can expect to be rejected as well. If Jesus is the stone rejected by men, then we should not be surprised if we are rejected. John 15, 20, Jesus tells his disciples, if they persecuted me, then they will persecute you. So don't be alarmed, Christian, if people reject your faith, or if they reject the way you live, or they reject the way you um, treat other people, or your views on things, or your politics that align with the Bible. 
Anything that you do that aligns with the Bible has the opportunity to be rejected and offensive to people around you. But if you have come to the living stone, to the cornerstone, understand that the cornerstone is rejected. And so therefore, before men, you may also be rejected. But just a few paragraphs later on, Peter says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So if you're going through life and you're struggling with the rejection that comes from identifying with Christ, then meditate for a while on Christ the cornerstone, rejected by men, rejected by his own people. The fact that the cornerstone is rejected in form is what we should expect. But even as we are rejected by men before God, we're identified with Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 3.27, For as many as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so by seeing Jesus rightly as the cornerstone, and as Peter and Paul say, we as living stones becoming like the cornerstone, you are chosen by God and you are precious in his sight. Just as the cornerstone is precious, so you are precious. So Jesus being the cornerstone has a lot to say about our identity as Christians and about who we are. And then Peter continues to stretch the boundary of the temple metaphor, as I said, to say the living stones of the temple are also the priests who serve in the temple, a holy priesthood, or he's going to say a little bit further on in verse 9, a royal priesthood. That says something about our identity as well. It says something about your identity if you're in Christ. Don't underestimate the significance of this statement in the context of the early Christians living in the shadow of Judaism. In this paragraph, Peter here calls all members of the church a spiritual temple, a holy and royal priesthood. So Peter says the Greeks, the slaves, the women and children, the poor, the lame, not just the Pharisees, not just the healthy, wealthy Jewish people, Not just all the people that you would expect to be priests or to be kings, to be royalty. Everyone is included in the temple and in the royal priesthood of God by the nature of being built on and coming to the cornerstone. And it's staggering to be included in the kingdom of God on the basis of the cornerstone, to become like the cornerstone and to be caught up in all of the royalty and the holy qualifications of the cornerstone. We have to realize as Christians that neither royalty nor priesthood is anything that we could attain on our own. This is an imputed identity. It's given to us by God by the nature of the fact that we have come to the cornerstone and are built on the cornerstone. And that makes every single Christian a royal priesthood. That's your identity in Christ. I'm never going to be royalty. It would be a long shot even to say I could become a priest. But because I build my life on the cornerstone, then my life and my serving is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's our identity with the cornerstone that makes us a royal priesthood. And that's hard for us to grasp. We don't even necessarily want it. It's like, don't call me a royal priest. Because it sounds like there's a lot of implications that come along with that. And there are. It's your identity in Christ. You don't realize it. But when you come to the cornerstone, that's what he makes you. 
This new identity in Christ grants every Christian the highest possible status of being a part of God's temple, being a part of his priesthood, and being a member of his royal family. And I don't know about you, but there's not too many days when I put my head down on my pillow at night and I wonder how I accomplished anything that day that would make me acceptable to God. And yet he says, you're part of my royal family. You're a priest. You're part of my temple. I don't deserve that, but that's what I am. I, don't, I, I can't stand here on my own righteousness. If, if I was to try to stand even here on my own righteousness, I'd be running for the door. But when we see Jesus as the cornerstone, as the foundation of our new identity, as a royal priesthood, then we are overwhelmed by the grace of God. So know this, everyone whose hope rests in Jesus is elevated to the greatest places in God's kingdom. Those who rule with Jesus and minister God's grace to others. No matter how unworthy or how unnoticeable you thought you were before you came to Christ, or maybe even think you are now, you are a holy and royal priest in God's church. So it corrects our, clarifies our identity. It also corrects our perception of Jesus. Both Isaiah and Peter emphasize that the cornerstone is chosen and precious in the sight of God. When God looks on Jesus, God cherishes everything that he sees in his son. He sees the foundation stone that he has chosen. And when we come to look on Jesus as the sure foundation of our faith and salvation, we should never look at Jesus as merely functional, but as ultimately desirable. Jesus is not just the means by which we get something in eternity. Jesus is not merely something functional, but he is desirable and to be cherished. And there are a lot of new Christians and too many older Christians who mainly and almost exclusively consider Jesus in functional terms. They understand themselves to be sinners. They understand that they are lost and eternally separated from God, apart from the saving work of Jesus. They've heard the gospel, and so they dutifully turn to Jesus for their salvation. They accept his righteousness as their own and his sacrifice for the atonement of their sin. And there's absolutely no question that the work of Jesus and the news of the gospel is functional. The gospel absolutely works for our salvation. God promises it works. But let me tell you, Especially let me tell you, fellow Christians, if you only see Jesus as functional and not beautiful, then I'm not sure you understood the gospel. You cannot see Jesus as merely functional. He's precious. He's beautiful. As often as the Bible tells us we have a new identity in Jesus, the Bible tells us that followers of Jesus love Jesus, that he's precious, desirable, beautiful, honorable, praiseworthy, and adored. And Jesus gives my favorite description of a true follower in Matthew 13:44. If you get nothing else out of this message today, I would encourage you to take this verse to heart and make it your own guiding verse as you seek to follow Jesus. It says, "The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has." buys that field. That's it in one sentence. That's what being a believer is. 
You see Jesus. You see the kingdom of heaven. You see all that that is that Jesus offers, and it is the most precious thing to you. And that isn't just how you come to Jesus. That's how you stay with Jesus. This is how you get victory over sin. This is how the gospel actually functions. The functional nature of the gospel and the way that Jesus functions in our lives is by being beautiful to us. We don't have to love Jesus. We get to love Jesus. God has so ordered things that our enjoyment and satisfaction in Jesus is the very means by which we are set free from all lesser desires and false satisfactions. Is there some sin in your life that you are inextricably attracted to? That it is just so tempting to you, it is so desirable to pursue that sin. Your desire in that sin evaporates to the degree that you value Jesus and see him as precious. By treasuring Christ, all other treasures diminish. By treasuring Christ, all other burdens are released. All other chains are released from us. We shrug off the materialism of the world as we see how glorious and good Jesus is. And we would never trade anything except to have Jesus. Whatever lens the Bible holds up for us to see Jesus through, it's to see him as desirable and precious to those that come to him. Finally, in terms of the individual Christian, Jesus as the cornerstone establishes our confidence. Quoting Isaiah's word to the nation of Israel, Peter declares the same message to the Christians of the church age to us. The purpose of God is unchanged. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To understand Jesus as the cornerstone... God has given us an answer for our doubts. The last part of Isaiah's word from God there will not be put to shame. It is translated several different ways, but they all mean the same thing. In the ESV, it says, will not be in haste. The NIV says, will never be stricken with panic. The the Holman Christian Standard says, will be unshakable. Peter says here, will not be put to shame. They all mean the same thing. You put your hope in the cornerstone, you have no need to run, you have no need to fear, you have no need to be embarrassed, you have no need to panic, because your hope in the cornerstone is sure, it is the answer to all of our doubts. God has given us a sure foundation for our faith and our life to trust in now and for eternity. What God has built will not fail. God has laid the stone in Zion. Zion is the ancient holy district of Jerusalem. It's where God intends to meet with his people. It's where God has established his royal rule. Psalm 121 says, Mount Zion cannot be moved, but abides forever. God has chosen and tested this stone. He loves the cornerstone, and we must never fear that the cornerstone will ever fail us. It is the establishment of our confidence. Now, it's interesting that this particular view of Jesus and the confidence that we should have in him comes to us from Peter. That he is the cornerstone, and on this you can build and never worry. Now, why is it interesting that Peter writes this in his letter? You may remember that that Peter did have something to do with Jesus' founding statements of the church. Jesus was asking his disciples who they thought he was. Maybe he was a prophet or Elijah reborn or a good teacher. And, And Peter answers Jesus and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
To which Jesus says, that answer didn't come from flesh and blood. That answer came from my father. And he says, Peter, Petra, little rock. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, who's the rock? (laughs) Peter knew what Jesus was saying. Peter understood that it isn't him. (laughs) What church would be built on Peter that could withstand hell? I mean, Peter was an interesting guy, to say the least. (laughs) Right? Faithful one day, lost the next. And like all of us, restored back into the grace of God, even after denying him three times. Sometimes he's praying, sometimes he's cutting people's ears off with swords. Right? Jesus is sitting there and he's saying, on this rock I will build my church. It's not Peter. Peter knows it's not Peter. So he writes in his letter, this is the rock that the church is built on. The cornerstone is Jesus. The rock that the gathering of the church is built on is the declaration that Peter made. That was not from Peter, but was from the Father. The declaration that Peter made was, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's the rock that the church is built on. And I don't know how some mainline churches have gotten this wrong for like 1,500 years. Because not even Peter understood what Jesus to say that way. Jesus understood the rock was Jesus. Peter understood the rock was Jesus. He's the cornerstone that the church is built on. And it will not fail. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we have absolute confidence in our faith and in any church that stays founded on him that we will be secure to the end. So it establishes our confidence, it clarifies our picture of Jesus and our understanding of our own identity. But finally, we come to the warning. There's a twofold purpose to Jesus' work as the cornerstone of God's house. He's everything we've talked about and more than those things as we accept him. But Jesus, the cornerstone, is something else entirely to those who reject him. He is the stumbling stone and the rock of offense. Peter concludes, so the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What we do with the cornerstone will establish our destiny. How you choose to approach the cornerstone will establish the conclusion of your existence. Isaiah, the psalmist, Jesus, Peter, they all present the reality of Jesus as the cornerstone in two ways, as both hope for the believer and a warning to the unbeliever. If you look to Jesus and you don't come to him as the living stone and as the sure foundation of your faith and salvation, if you don't see Jesus as desirable and your place and purpose in him, if none of those things are true about Jesus, then you will be offended by him. You will be offended by the claims he makes of who he is. You'll be offended by the claims he makes on your life. You will be offended by the light that he shines on your darkness. You will be offended by the confidence that Christians have in him. You will stumble over the cornerstone and it will sweep away your foundation. Jesus says, there's only two ways to approach me. You're either going to be approach me and be destined for confidence and salvation, or if you don't approach me, you'll be destined 
for destruction. To see Jesus rightly through the lens of the cornerstone is of great blessing to the Christian, but it's also a clear call to the unbeliever. God does not want you to stumble. He does not want you left to be clinging to your false refuges. He wants to sweep your false refuge and your false security away from you. He wants to undermine any false hopes you have so that you cling to the cornerstone, so that you come to him. So that you build your life and your faith and your salvation and everything, your family, your church, your work, every part of your life built on him. God does not want you in false refuges. He wants you built on the cornerstone. And so Jesus doesn't leave you the option. He says, you're either going to come to me and be built or I will sweep away your false security. The world today is a vast desert of shifting and barren sand. And maybe you've been trying to find a stable place to walk or to stand, and you thought you had your stability either in this philosophy or in this lifestyle or in you know, pursuing this, but then something came along and everything shifted under your feet and you don't understand the world anymore or what's going on. And Jesus says you should expect that to happen because you're not built on the cornerstone. Maybe you've tried to find refuge in places that are not actually secure. And the next crisis just washes away the hope and confidence that you built up. God said to Israel 4,000 years ago through Isaiah. He said to the whole world 2,000 years ago through Jesus. He says to us today through his word that there is a rock, there is a firm foundation on which you can stand. It's a tested, precious, and unshakable refuge that will draw you into community and into unity and into purpose. It will give you a new identity in the holy and royal household of God. And you need not stumble if you build on that cornerstone. I pray that you would do that today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this lens through which we can see Jesus as the cornerstone. It speaks in so many different ways into our life. Our life together as a church our life as individual Christians, even the lives of those who do not yet believe who may be listening to the sound of my voice right now. Father, we know you do not want them to stumble, but they will stumble if they do not see and receive Jesus for who he is. He is your son. He is their salvation. He has come not to judge the world, but to save the world the world puts their hope in him. And so, Father, I pray that right now for that everyday miracle of your Holy Spirit opening hearts and minds to say, my security, my refuge has been nothing but disaster. I need the hope and the salvation of Jesus Christ, and so I just turn away from all of my rebellion. I turn away from all of my false grasping after things that are of this world, and I put my hope in Jesus Christ alone. And at that moment, just as the Pharisees realized that Jesus was talking about them and him, at that moment when we make that decision, we become living stones built into your household. And we are secure forever. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.